to the fourth message in our series, Rethink. We've been talking about the importance of rethinking compassion. We talked about rethinking the way we've always done it. Pastor Kyle talked about rethinking the cost of following Jesus. And this weekend, we're going to be talking about rethinking greatness. Now, I read something the other day that really bothered me. I don't know if you ever come across things that kind of bug you, but this really did. It said that taller people are more successful in life. And uh, I didn't qualify for the tall. That's why it really bothered me. That's true for men and for women. If you're taller, you just get a, a bigger shake in life. People just, for whatever reason, assume that because you're tall, you're smart, because you're tall, you're a leader, because you're tall, you're this, and tall, you're that. That explains, then, why the disciples were arguing about who is going to be the tallest. See, I didn't know the disciples argued about who's going to be the tallest. Yeah, it's right in the Bible. Turn to Mark chapter 9, if you will, with me, and uh, I'll show you what I mean. So grab your Bibles out and turn to Mark chapter 9. Now, we're going to diagram the message this morning, and the reason I want to do that is because sometimes it's, it's easier to understand the truth when you see it played out in front of you in the form of a picture as it is to just listen to it or hear it. So uh, I hope you have some pens or pencils with you and that you'll draw with me as we do that because I want you to see the picture and kind of keep it with you to think about. So we'll get started right away so you can grab your utensils and uh, a piece of paper. And we're going to start with a, a mountaintop experience, literally a mountaintop experience. And it's called the Mount of Transfiguration that Mark chapter 9 opens up with. And Jesus is on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, and he's in a glorified state. He's shining as bright as the sun. They're seeing him with the glory he had before he took on a human body. It's just it's an amazing picture we can't even capture with words. Up there with him are three of his dearest friends. You've got Peter, you've got James, and you've got John, the inner three disciples. And there are two special guests that appear. You've got Moses and you've got Elijah. He had the voice of God booming and speaking and saying, particularly for the disciples to hear, saying that he loves his son. And then God says, listen to my son, which is something Peter had a really hard time doing. How many of you will admit you have a hard time listening to others, listening to people? Yeah, that's, come on. How many of you students? Hard to listen, isn't it? Sometimes when you've got other things on your mind, God's saying, listen to my son. Listen to what he has to say to you because it's so really important. And Peter, he sees all of this happening, experiencing it, and he says, let's just stay up here. We'll build a shelter for Moses, for Elijah, and one for you, Jesus. Let's stay up here. This is an awesome atmosphere. But Jesus breaks the bad news and he says, we've got to go back down. So we have to descend, right, off the mountain, right, make our way back down into what I am going to give this name, the Valley of Despair. And to me, the Valley of Despair is this world that we live in these days without God's rule, all right? Valley of Despair, put Valley of God. I can't talk and write, all right? can't talk and draw, but anyway, all right, so Valley of Despair, and the first thing they encounter is a situation where a demon is involved, so certainly in this world that we live in today, there's a lot of spiritual warfare, the Bible teaches it, I believe it, I think we see it all around us, and in particular, it's represented by a father who has brought his son to the other disciples who didn't go up the hill, 
there's a crowd that's formed around, and he asks them to heal and deliver his son who's troubled by an evil spirit. So bad, the dad says, that sometimes the spirit throws the son into the fire or into the water. But these guys can't deliver. No matter how they pray, no matter what they say, no matter what they do, that boy is not being delivered. And everybody's uptight about it. Everybody's upset about it. And that's when Jesus happens to show up. And when he does, over in Mark chapter 9, in verse 16, he asks the question. He says, what is all this arguing about between his disciples, between people in the crowd, and especially this dad who cares so much about his son. And the father tells him, he says, here's my situation I've got going on, and I got this boy, and I thought maybe your people could deliver him, and I brought him, and nothing's happened as a result of that. And then he says to Jesus, or he asks Jesus, do you think you, do you, think you can help? And Jesus responds to him in verse 23 and says, what do you mean, if I can? Anything is possible if a person believes. And I love the father's response because I need to hear what he says because it's how I feel sometimes. The father responds instantly. He says, I do believe. But he says, help me overcome my unbelief. Sometimes in my relationship with God, my journey with God, I believe, but I still struggle with doubt. It's like, God, I need you to help me overcome my unbelief. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? experience that in your own life. I'm thankful it's there because I feel the same way. You know, I love what Tim Keller says. We only need enough faith to come to Jesus, but we have to have some faith. And God can then strengthen our faith. Now, look what happens. It says, when Jesus saw the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, oh, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet, and he stood up. Just like he did with Jairus' daughter, who was dead, took her by the hand, and immediately she was healed and stood up. That's the power of Jesus. And it says in verse 21 or 28 that afterwards, when, it, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Why couldn't we do it? And Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. And Matthew adds fasting. This kind can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. That is, there is some evil in this world that you have really, really got to seek God for the power to overcome. Remember, Jesus and at least three of his disciples have been on the mountaintop experience with God. God has spoken, and they come off that mountain with anointed power, and Jesus, Jesus casts the demon out of that boy. It's a powerful lesson. If you don't have the mountaintop with God, you're not going to survive in the valley with the devil. You know, there are times in our lives when, uh, when following Jesus is hard. You ever notice that? I think sometimes we have this idea that it's the hardest to follow Jesus when you're a young Christian, you're new. And that's, there's some truth to that. When you're getting 
new habits started, you're getting rid of old habits and change is taking place, it can be hard. But if you're a serious follower of Christ, if like you are really going to take following Jesus seriously and live a Christian life and, and care about the people around you and try to make a difference, it's going to get harder. It's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. Why? Because you get this unseen force trying to push against you, trying to get you sidetracked, whether it's through temptation or apathy or, or you know, hurling at you in terms of suffering. The enemy will do anything to stop you, anything to stop you. And if you aren't prayed up, as my mom used to say, if you're not spending real time with God, you'll be overcome. You'll... you'll You'll be impotent against the enemy, powerless. This past week, I had the opportunity to be in uh, Ethiopia to minister on behalf of Wooddale Church, on your behalf, with one of our global partners, Bekele Shenko, who is the vice president for Crew Campus Crusade, used to be called, their international global movement. And so I went to speak there in Addis Ababa, and there were supposed to be 500 pastors that were going to show up, but 700 came. It's crowded. Just so you know, I went there, I brought a picture back. You don't think I'm on the beach tanning someplace, all right? <laughs> and uh, I knew it was going to be a spiritually intense time. You see, God's at work in Ethiopia. There are many people coming to faith, but the problem is there's very poor Bible training for these emerging pastors. A lot of them are young. And so the way they're learning to be pastors and, and lead their churches is by watching Western televangelists. Some are good, some are not. And so you've got these pastors who are running around, it's a real problem, running around calling themselves apostles and prophets, dressed up slick, look good, and then preaching health and prosperity, gathering huge crowds, making all kinds of ridiculous claims and promises. And it's having an adverse effect, an adverse effect in that culture. So uh, my job was to go there, and one of the things I was supposed to do is talk about what true discipleship is, and, and I felt led to give the first message on what is the gospel. What is the gospel? I had a young man come up to me afterwards, a young pastor. He said, I never knew that was the gospel. I was shocked when he said it to me. He said, I thought, he said, I thought the gospel was, was health and prosperity. Wow. Gospel is what Jesus does for us that we cannot do for ourselves. He saves us. That is the power of God that changes hearts and lives. So I knew I really better be prayed up because I knew going and doing that, there'd be all kinds of warfare. And so I prayed and I prayed and I prayed more intensely and I prayed a long time. And I asked some people to pray intensely for me. And I'm so glad I did because you know what happened? Nothing. And sometimes when nothing happens, that's a great answer to prayer. There are a couple of little incidences. Like the first morning, they couldn't get the lights to work and the microphones to work. In that big room, that was going to be a big problem. But guess what? Right before it was time to start, they worked. The next day, everybody got food poisoning in the afternoon. They were over it by the evening and all able to attend the next day. Prayer is powerful. Prayer works. God works through prayer. Well, the journey continues on the valley, in the valley of despair. And Jesus, I'll just use three to represent 12. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says to them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. 
I'm going to go there, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise on the third day. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has told them this. He's told them this before. But they can never get past hearing him say he's going to die. They never get to the resurrection. They get stuck right there because it leaves all kinds of questions in their minds. It's not how they, pre- it's not how they conceive the Messiah. They got the law for salvation. The Messiah is supposed to socially and politically save and rescue Israel. What is all this death talk? It doesn't make sense. And every time they try to talk to Jesus about it, it just doesn't make sense. So they don't know what to do. They just keep silent. It's not on their agenda. Have you ever noticed that your agenda and God's agenda don't always match up? I, I, I've noticed that to be the case in my own life. And so you've got all this talk about suffering. You've got, you know, demons. You've got suffering that's taking place or going to take place. And then as they continue along the journey, I'll draw a couple more disciples, all right, to represent the 12 and Jesus is kind of ahead of them, moving along, they're all having a fight with each other. They're all arguing with each other. And the question is, what are they fighting and what are they arguing about? I already gave you a clue at the beginning of the message. Let me show you what I mean. Come down the passage to verse 33. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in the house, Jesus asked his disciples, hey guys, what were you uh, discussing out on the road. He knew what they were discussing. He's giving them a chance to be open and honest about it. I mean, evidently, it must have been quite a heated conversation. He could, he could overhear it. So what are you guys talking about on the road? But they didn't, they didn't answer because they didn't want to answer. Why did, they want, why did they not want to answer? Because they had been arguing about which of them was the tallest. Okay, it says greatest, but it means the same thing. Which one of us is going to be the most successful? Which one of us is head and shoulders above the other? And there were all kind of candidates vying for why they should be number one. James and John and Peter and all the list goes. We're number one. We should be number one. And I wish it was the only time they ever argued about who was the tallest, who was the greatest. But it happened a lot of times. And one of the worst times of all is when you get to Luke chapter 22 on the night the Lord's betrayed at the, at the Lord's table when he's explaining the bread and the cup representing his life that's about to be poured out. And when he says, one of you will betray me. And they're all wondering, is it I? In verse 24, they shift right away from this intense conversation. They shift back to, but who's going to be the greatest? <laughs> who's going to be the greatest? I don't know, let's talk about death, but which one? I deserve to sit at his right side. I'm the number two guy. Look at all I've been through. Look at all I said. Look what he said to me. I'm the guy. Man, Jesus must have shook his head sometimes, huh? What is going on with you guys? How many more times do I have to tell you? So he responds to all of this, and he says to them, whoever wants to be first among you must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. This guys, wake up. It's like a slap in the face, throwing water in their face, cold water. It's like, guys, wake up. You're so consumed. You're so self-absorbed with what you're going to be. You're missing the picture. And that happens to all of us, doesn't it? it, it especially in a material world like we live in, it's so easy to get self-absorbed, to get focused on our own agenda. We don't see what God's doing or what God's trying to say to us. I, I jotted down some ways that happens in our lives. You know, sometimes we get so absorbed building our own career. That we, we just don't have time to, 
hear God and see what God is doing. We get so absorbed raising our family and spending time with our, uh, getting our kids shuttled out to all the different places they're going, getting all the things, the clubs and programs that got them involved in, that they don't have time for God and we don't have time for God. I was talking to a youth specialist the other day who ministers to youth all across the western suburbs. I think Pastor Heather and Pastor Mike agree with this. I said, it's the biggest problem with kids today. Is it drugs? Is it sex? Is it alcohol? And he goes, none of the above. He said, the biggest problem I find with my kids is they are just, they are tanked. They are overworked. They have no space, no time. They just go, go, go. Wow. That's a drug. That's a drug. And no time for rest and, and no time for God. And we as parents have to admit, we're driving a lot of it. Why? Because we want them to be successful. Or how about social media? What a phenomenon social media is. Talk about occupying people's time. I was at, uh, this, is an, this was actually in Ethiopia. There was a little gym where I was staying. Most machines worked, some of them didn't. So I decided to go down one day and just get, get a little bit of exercise. And by the way, it's the third highest city in the world. And I found out the hard way. <laughs> it's like, why can't I breathe at night? But anyway, um, I, I'm just exercising. There's, there's, there's three people in the gym, two guys and another guy sitting in the corner who's supposed to kind of be the trainer. The guy in the corner is like this the whole time, all right? All right, then there's these guys on the machines, the machines that I want to use in a few minutes, right? And they're sitting on the machine like this, and every once in a while they stop to go, uh, uh, exercise, and then back to doing this. Like, I'm serious, they're on the, the machines for at least 15 minutes, and almost all 15 minutes on social media, and I thought, this is a joke. I need a video of this. Come work out and get healthy. The only thing they're working out are their thumbs. We get so preoccupied, so preoccupied with the internet, we're more concerned on what the Kardashians think and are doing than what God says and what God is doing or whoever's in the news. We get so focused competing with each other, trying to please our peers, the right people, we don't have time for God. Or we're so angry about what's going on politically or some injustice, we don't have time for God. We feel like we're the victim and we're so sorry for ourselves. We're so discouraged with ourselves. We're so unhappy with our situation that it clouds us hearing and listening to God. How are you hearing God these days? Can you hear God? Do you see what God is doing in your life? Do you see what God is doing in the world? Do you see what your purpose really is? To drive the point home, look what Jesus does. Verse 36. Then he put a little child among them, taking the child in his arms. Please remember that. Taking the child in his arms. Underline it. We'll get back to it. He said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my father who sent me. And in chapter 10, they go through the whole thing again. Look at verse 13. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. Peter, James, John, Matthew, the rest of them, he's angry. He's ticked at them. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these little children. I tell you the truth, anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. And he took the children, here it is, second time, underline it, 
in his arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. Now, this helps us understand some weird things that Jesus said in verse 42 of chapter 9. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, who's he talking to, by the way? Peter, James, John, and the others. It would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. Hey, Jesus, we thought we were your friends. Thought we were your disciples. It's kind of brutal what you just said. Now, that's not all. Look what else he says. Verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the maggot never die and the fire never goes out. Do you think those guys are a little wide-eyed by now? If you, if, you know, if you have this picture of Jesus as this kind of meek, pathetic, you know, kind of hunched over, you know, docile kind of person, you got the wrong picture of Jesus. When he needed to be, he could be very stern and very firm. And he's being this way with his disciples. He doesn't mean these things literally. He's saying, spiritually speaking, it's this, it's this serious. It'd be better off for you to do those things and have all this stuff happen to you. Verse 49, for everyone will be tested with fire. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. What's Jesus' point? His point is really clear. Don't get so focused on success and, and ambition and greatness that you become a hindrance to the people who need you. If you're climbing the ladder, you're, that means you're moving ahead of others. But think about what greatness means for just a minute. In order for you to be great, somebody has to be not so great. The root word for greatness is more. So if I'm going to be great, it means I have to be more of something than the next person. I have to have more money. I have to have more smarts. I have to have more, you know, more looks, more whatever it is. Jesus says, stop focusing on more. I want you to focus on the least. But, you know, I, I don't want to just talk about it. I thought, well, Jesus grabbed a child to make his point. So I'm going to invite my buddy George to come out here. All right, so George, where are you? All right, come out here and join me, pal. Would you give it up for, give it up for George? There you go, buddy. All right. All right, George is a good-looking guy, isn't he? All right, he's such a humble guy here, all right? Now, can you imagine what it was like, can you imagine what it was like for Jesus, or, I mean, for the disciples when Jesus said, hey, hey, you guys, all vying for who's the tallest, who's the greatest? You really want to be great? You got to be like him. You know, that's what Jesus is saying is if you really want to be, if you want to be tall, you gotta get small. If you want to be great, you gotta be the least. In my kingdom, the way up is down. Remember I told you twice, look what Jesus does. Takes him in his arms. Ready, George? Put an arm around me and oh, can you imagine Jesus picking up these children? Wow, what a blessing, huh? What's Jesus saying when he picks them up? He's saying to his disciples, instead of trying to reach for the stars, I need you to get down, and I need you to pick up the least of these. I want you to spend your life lifting others up to me. That's, Jesus says, that's what greatness is all about.
Way to go, George. All right? I'm going to let you go back. Okay, buddy? All right? You know where you're going? All right. That's, that's the picture that God has for us. Now, it's by no mistake that Jesus chose children. Because in Jesus' day, children were so belittled. They, were even, they weren't really even considered persons. Sometimes they're referred to as it. In Jesus' day, women, and especially children, were so looked down upon and so mistreated that Jesus gravitated toward them and elevated them with the value that God gives to them. I've had people recently ask me about the whole situation that's going on in our culture right now, been going on, but it's really in the news with abortion. And we've been hearing a lot about it in New York. You know, they celebrated, they lit up all the high-rise buildings with pink lights. Now, you know, abortion in the last trimester and, 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 and full term and just, just the arrogance, the, the almost excitement about it all. And I, I think to myself when, you know, when, of course, people are saying, well, what do we think? What do you think, Pastor? And so I'm responding. I, I, I first, I think about the women and, and, and the men too, but particularly the women who have been through an abortion or who are, who've come very close to it. And I just think, how agonizing it must be for them to see this all being echoed out in the news because research tells us that the woman, and again, the men who are part of it sometimes, but particularly the women, oftentimes have very post-traumatic hurt and pain, physical, mental, emotional, as a result of this. And how easy it is as the church sometimes to quickly respond in such a way that we just, we just pile on the fire. We just add more condemnation. And we almost, we almost feel justified to, to condemn at that moment when they're already feeling a lot of condemnation. But then I think about the other side of the coin, and that is when a church says nothing and becomes uh, complicit by doing and saying nothing about it because we have come to believe a terrible demonic lie. And the lie is this, that abortion is a political issue. Yes, it's been politicized, but it is not a political issue. It is a spiritual, moral issue. And the church of Christ needs to come and we need to get down on our knees and come alongside of those who have been affected by it. Rather than damn and judge and condemn, point them to the love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness that Christ can bring into our lives when we sin, which abortion is a sin. It's a big issue, and you have, unless you're well-read right now, you have no idea what's happening in our culture. It's not just abortion, it's so many other things. And it all stems from how we think about human beings. So next year I'm working on is putting a lot of effort into beginning to a, a series on, on what it means to be created in the image of God. See, in our culture today, people who don't necessarily even believe in God will admit that at conception you have human life. So there's no debate about when does life start anymore. Unless you're really ignorant and out of touch Almost everybody agrees life starts at conception. The big question, though, is when do you become a person? Personhood theory. It has a huge effect on so many other things. And that debate is going on. A lot of us don't even realize it. 
My point here, though, is our response has to be one of truth but compassion and grace. And so as we seek to accelerate hope in our vision, one of the things that I'm, I'm just determined, I feel God calling me to lead, is to make sure as Wooddale Church that, that we respond by making available every form of ministry possible to reach out to young women and to girls and to guys and, and to others who are facing these kinds of challenges. Doing our best to show compassion and grace and hope and alternative and healing and restoration. You know, we already are involved, and you can see it in our, in our prayer guide. You can pick them up by the doors if you don't already have one. But you'll see who some of our partners are locally that we work with to help those who are the least of these. When I came home Friday uh, at the airport, MSP, I got off the plane, and, and I, you know, I'd just been in Africa, and I'm getting off the plane, and I see all these Africans who are getting off various flights and they're in the baggage carousel collecting their bags. And I can tell, you can tell who's coming to, for the first time. And they got these bags they're yanking off, these massive bags, they're in their garb. And I'm thinking to myself, you poor people, when you walk out those doors, this is not an African climate. It is gonna be cold. But I just looked around, and I saw all these people, and I thought, there's, there's, there's a couple ways to respond to this. One is to just, just say, what are they doing here? Another one is to say, you're somebody else's problem, not mine. Or to be like Jesus and get down on our knees once again and get rid of the politics of the whole thing and look at these immigrants and these refugees and say to ourselves, what can I do to come alongside and lift them up and show them the love of Jesus Christ? And the grace that God has for them. My wife just started getting involved with our borrow tutoring program. And uh, I love it when she comes home and tells me stories of the little children that she's helping to tutor. Who are a different religious belief, a different culture. But they just need to experience somebody showing them the love of Jesus. That's what God calls us to. That's what greatness is all about. He has such a huge opportunity for his church. Rather than fighting it politically, rather than getting angry and immobilized by our anger and, and pitting sides, we just need to get on our knees and serve and love. Yes, speak the truth. We never not speak the truth. That's, that's condemning to not speak the truth. But you got to speak the truth and show love while you do it. And the ultimate example is Jesus, because if you go back to our picture, and here's why I wanted you to draw this out, you start out with this mountaintop experience. If you follow the gospel through, though, you end up with a mountaintop experience. A cross planted on a mountain where Jesus dies for the least of these. Where the king becomes a servant, where the greatest becomes the least, where Jesus loses to win. It's so opposite of everything we know, isn't it? But on the cross, he literally lifted us up in grace and forgiveness and in hope. And the life that Jesus lived, listen, is the life that we are supposed to live. We're supposed to have our mountaintop experiences with God every day. 
a quiet time, being alone with God, so that when we go out to work, to school, wherever we go, into the valley of despair and encounter all the challenges there, we'll stay true and faithful and powerful and be willing to lay our lives down in order to lift others up. And none of you will probably ever be called on by God to physically lay your life down for another. No, it's possible. But there's so many other ways for us to lay our lives down. So here's your homework assignment, if you choose to accept it. Joining all the other ones you've had a chance to write down during our series. Jot this down. By God's help, can't do it on my own. By God's help, my aim, my, my desire, my purpose is to become the greatest by becoming the least. Get tall by getting small. Be the greatest by being the least. Go up by going down. I will do this. I will do this by putting others first, no matter what it costs me. You students can do this at school. You can do this in your neighborhood. You can do this with peers who are around you that you see. What are ways for you to put them ahead of yourself? What are ways for you to serve them? That would so honor Christ. That would be just like Christ. When you go to work this week, how can you put your fellow employees your boss first. When you're at the store, when you're at the gym, how can you put somebody else first? In the neighborhood, how can you put them first? In your family, how can you put them first? Learn to put others first, and you'll see God begin to do miracles. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you. And this is a difficult challenge, but it's an exciting challenge too, God. That is to live like Christ, to Forget about ourselves, Lord. And to begin in the spirit of Christ to think of others ahead of ourselves. Lord Jesus, the world, Minneapolis in particular, so desperately needs this right now. And here I am sitting and standing with men and women who have the capacity to be Jesus every day by thinking about others more than they think about themselves. Please, God, use us and just show us. Let us have an exciting journey with you this week of doing this and then just seeing what you do with it. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.